Well, this evening we are proceeding with Act 2 of the book of Esther. What a drama. So please turn with me to Esther chapter 2, and we'll read all of this chapter and cover it all this evening. Um, Esther chapter 2, verses 1 through 23. We read God's word as an act of worship. Paul commanded Timothy that he was to give attention to the public reading of Scripture. So uh, tune your ears now to listen to God's word as we read Esther 2, 1 to 23. After these things, when the anger of King Ahasuerus had abated, he remembered Vashti and what she had done and what had been decreed against her. Then the king's young men who attended him said, Let beautiful young virgins be sought out for the king. And let the king appoint officers in all the provinces of his kingdom to gather all the beautiful young virgins to the harem in Susa the citadel under custody of Haggai, the king's eunuch, who is in charge of the women. Let their cosmetics be given them, and let the young woman who pleases the king be queen instead of Vashti. This pleased the king, and he did so. Now there was a Jew in Susa the citadel whose name was Mordecai, the son of Jair, the son of Shimei, the son of Kish, a Benjaminite, who had been carried away from Jerusalem among the captives, carried away with Jeconiah, king of Judah, whom Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, had carried away. He was bringing up Hadassah, that is Esther, the daughter of his uncle, for she had neither father nor mother. The young woman had a beautiful figure and was lovely to look at, and when her father and her mother died, Mordecai took her as his own daughter. So when the king's order and his edict were proclaimed, And when many young women were gathered in Susa, the citadel, in custody of Haggai, Esther also was taken into the king's palace and put in custody of Haggai, who had charge of the women. And the young woman pleased him and won his favor, and he quickly provided her with her cosmetics and her portion of food, and with seven chosen young women from the king's palace, and advanced her and her young women to the best place in the harem, Esther had not made known her people or kindred, for Mordecai had commanded her not to make it known. And every day Mordecai walked in front of the court of the harem to learn how Esther was and what was happening to her. Now when the turn came for each young woman to go into King Ahasuerus, after being 12 months under the regulations for the women, since this was the regular period for their beautifying, six months with oil of myrrh and six months with spices and ointments for women, when the young woman was, uh, went into the king in this way, she was given whatever she desired to take with her from the harem to the king's palace. In the evening she would go in, and in the morning she would return to the second harem in custody of Shaashgaz, the king's eunuch, who was in charge of the concubines. She would not go into the king again unless the king delighted in her, and she was summoned by name. When the turn came for Esther, the daughter of Abiel, the uh, uncle of Mordecai, who had taken her as his own daughter, to go into the king, she asked for nothing except what Haggai, the king's eunuch, who had charge of the women, advised. Now Esther was winning favor in the eyes of all who saw her. And when Esther was taken to King Ahasuerus into his royal palace in the tenth month, which is the month of Tebet, In the seventh year of his reign, 
The king loved Esther more than all the women, and she won grace and favor in his sight more than all the virgins, so that he set the royal crown on her head and made her queen instead of Vashti. Then the king gave a great feast for all his officials and servants. It was Esther's feast. He also granted a remission of taxes to the provinces and gave gifts with royal generosity. Now, when the virgins were gathered together the second time, Mordecai was sitting at the king's gate. Esther had not made known her kindred or her people as Mordecai had commanded her, for Esther obeyed Mordecai just as when she was brought up by him. In those days, as Mordecai was sitting at the king's gate, Bigthon and Teresh, two of the king's eunuchs, who guarded the threshold, became angry and sought to lay hands on King Ahasuerus. And this came to the knowledge of Mordecai, and he told it to Queen Esther. And Esther told the king in the name of Mordecai, when the affair was investigated and found to be so, the men were both hanged on the gallows, and it was recorded in the book of the Chronicles in the presence of the king. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God abides forever. Please pray with me. Our Lord and our God, thank you so much for your word. What a treasure. Please instruct us now by it. Enable us to grow in our love for you and our love for our Savior and our delight in your Holy Spirit. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Well, this evening, the curtain rises on Act 2 of the story of Esther. This part of the story of Esther is filled with many curiosities. Questions should arise in your mind... And the narrator of the story does not seek to answer them for you directly. Instead, he leaves breadcrumbs for you to pick up and to follow. Hints that help us to decipher the full meaning of the activities that are put on display in this part of the play. The first thing that we notice in the text is Ahasuerus the aggravated, or put another way, hasty decisions hurt the decider. Ahasuerus the aggravated, or hasty decisions hurt the decider. Notice in verses 1 through 4 we read that after these things, when the anger of King Ahasuerus had abated, he remembered Vashti and what she had done and what had been decreed for her. So perhaps somewhere around two years had passed uh, since the end of chapter 1, just to to go back and uh, orient your mind, in chapter 1, verse 3, we read there that the, the festivities, the feasting had gone on in the third year of Ahasuerus' reign. And then in chapter 2, verse 15 uh, or 16, We find, and when Esther was taken to King Ahasuerus into his royal palace in the tenth month, which is in the month, which is the month of Tebet, in the seventh year of his reign. So we know that a year prior to that was all of the preparation, and so somewhere between one and two years had passed, and finally we find our character, King Ahasuerus, struck with regret. He remembered. Vashti. It took him that long to do so, apparently, but he did. Anyway, his anger finally abated. It went away. It subsided. 
We notice uh, that we often regret decisions that are made hastily and in anger, don't we? Well, King Ahasuerus was no different. Although a king and should have been above these things, we think, well, he wasn't. He was just as hasty and just as wrathful as we often get. He remembered, the narrator tells us. Now, this is the kind of remembering that means actively to call to mind. So it's not as though he was walking through a corridor in the palace and suddenly got a whiff of perfume or, or sat down and there was a moment there that he enjoyed a meal that he and Vashti once enjoyed together. Ahasuerus sat down and he set his mind on Vashti. In Genesis chapter 8 and verse 1, we read that God remembered Noah In Genesis chapter 30 and verse 22, we read that God remembered Rachel who was barren and He gave her a child. This is a favorable sort of remembrance. And so here is Ahasuerus likely remembering what had happened and now feeling how? Regret. Boy, what a doofus thing to do. To pass that edict against my wife. He was coaxed, remember, into an irreversible decision. Perhaps the men knew this about Ahasuerus, that he's the kind of guy who's going to, in all of his temper and all of his flair, he's going to put his foot down, but then when time goes on, the foot will slowly lift. And so what did they tell him to do? Pass the law, give it to the Persians and the Medes so that it is irreversible. It is irreversible. And here is Ahasuerus remembering all those things. And what has happened? He was a hemmed-in man. He had painted himself into a corner. This conflict now that you are seeing, this man perhaps sitting in his room and stewing over what has happened and and perhaps how he's going to resolve it, introduces us to another conflict in the story. And we're left to wonder, what's he going to do? How is he going to remedy it? How will he solve the problem? Well, not much differently than the first problem. His men came to him to give him advice. And you notice what they told him to do. Look with me at verse 2. Then the king's young men who attended him said... Let beautiful young virgins be sought out for the king. And they're emphatic on this. So so emphatic that they say it twice. We don't want you to miss this. What kind of woman should you look for, Ahasuerus? Say it with us. Beautiful young virgins. They are to look throughout the empire. Ahasuerus, consistent with form, true to form, wants a woman with mere external appeal and who is totally pliable. We're not going to make the Vashti mistake again. Get a young girl, one who will listen to you, who's not going to dare talk back to the king and also beautiful. Foolish men Pursue women whose beauty is merely external. And foolish women, 
delight in, cultivate, and desire that pursuit. They deserve each other. This is exactly the kind of a man that Ahasuerus is. As we think about what is going on with Ahasuerus, we remember that we will regret decisions made hastily and in anger. More often than not, we regret decisions made hastily and in anger. Proverbs chapter 14, verse 17 says, A man of quick temper acts foolishly, and a man of evil devices is hated. In other words, there is a great deal of wisdom in silence, patience, and pondering when you are faced with difficult decisions. Don't be like Ahasuerus, who not only was drunk and angry, acted hastily, and now who is the fool? It is Ahasuerus themselves. We remember that the plans of the foolish will often come back to haunt them. You think about the wisdom that Joseph's brothers thought they were acting in in Genesis 46 to 50. They thought, boy, if we want to get rid of this little twerp, all we have to do is kill him, throw him in a hole, do something with him, sell him into Egypt. And suddenly they found that all of those plans had been turned on their heads. God will often cause the plans of the foolish to harm the foolish. And we see that with Ahasuerus. Secondly, and we're going to look at this point in a couple of different ways. Secondly, we notice Mordecai, the guardian. Or, fathers, don't let your daughters grow up to be prostitutes. We notice a few things here. The narrator wants us to know some of the biographical background of Mordecai. Look with me at verses 5 through 7. Now there was a Jew in Susa, the citadel, whose name was Mordecai, the son of Jair, son of Shimei, son of Kish, a Benjaminite. Now to you and me who are generally casual readers of the Old Testament that probably doesn't mean all that much. But it should. Because that genealogy affects the whole story. Who was Kish? Well, Kish is not all that famous, but he did have a famous son whose name was Saul, who was the first king over Israel. We notice also that he is a son of Shimei. You remember the Shimei? We spoke of him this morning. This was the one who, as David was fleeing the capital city, Jerusalem, when Absalom was pursuing him, this was the Shimei who walked along the caravan shouting curses at David and throwing rocks. He also was a relative of Saul. That cannot be missed. It is a central point to this whole narrative. But we, we notice something else. Not only is he a descendant of Saul, but the narrator really, really wants you to know that he was carried away, doesn't he? Look with me at verse 6. Who had been 
carried away from Jerusalem among the captives, carried away with Jeconiah, king of Judah, whom Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, had carried away. Did you catch that? He was carried away. Three times the narrator wants you to see and remember that this man was carried away. Now, in all likelihood, uh, Mordecai wasn't carried away in the captivity of Jerusalem because that had been over a hundred years prior. But the narrator definitely wants you to make the connection between this man Mordecai and that captivity. Why is that important? Well, turn with me to hold your finger here and turn with me to 2 Kings chapter 24. 2 Kings chapter 24. Read the first couple of verses, and then we'll skip down to verse 14. Uh, 2 Kings 24, 1. In his days, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came up, and Jehoiakim became his servant for three years. Then he turned and rebelled against him, and the Lord sent against him bands of the Chaldeans, and bands of the Syrians, and bands of the Moabites, and, excuse me, bands of the Ammonites, and sent them against Judah to destroy it, according to the word of the Lord that he spoke by his servants, the prophets. Now skip down. With me to verse 14. He carried away, this is Nebuchadnezzar, carried away all Jerusalem and all the officials and all the mighty men of valor, 10,000 captives and all the craftsmen and the smiths, none remained except the poorest people of the land. Nebuchadnezzar didn't want them. So when when Mordecai's family was taken away, very likely we see again that they were amongst the officials. So he didn't have a common lineage. This is a man who came from the high up ranks. In fact, his family was descended from Saul. He has a kingly line. And so the first thing that we we think about when we think about Mordecai is here is a man who did not grow up in Jerusalem. His home was Persia. It's all he ever knew. From the time he was born to now, he had grown up in Susa the Citadel. He was a metropolitan boy. This is who he was. Perhaps he had never been to Jerusalem. The rebuilding of the temple had finished 50 years before this time. And here he is, still in Susa. This is his home now. He is a Persian boy. He is, we find, according to the Scriptures here in verse 7, the father to a young girl that was not born to him. Turn back to Esther chapter 2. Look with me at verse 7. Again, the, the narrator really wants you to know this. He was bringing up Hadassah, that is Esther, the daughter of his uncle, for she had neither father nor mother. The young woman had a beautiful figure and was lovely to look at. And when her father and her mother died, Mordecai took her as his own daughter. This is important. How do we know? Well, it's mentioned two more 
times. Look at verse 15. When the turn came for Esther, the daughter of Abiel, the uncle of Mordecai, who had taken her as his own daughter. We already knew that. But the narrator is emphasizing it to you. You must remember it. And he says it again. If you turn over to verse 20. Esther obeyed Mordecai just as when she was brought up by him. In every sense of the term, Mordecai is her father. She's his daughter. She looks up to him. She respects him. She obeys him. And so we'll take a moment now to pause on Mordecai and we're going to come back to him because the narrator does to close this act. The curtain will not go down until we revisit Mordecai one more time. Thirdly, let's notice Esther, the innocent, who is also a charmer. Two things that we notice in verses 8 to 18 about Esther. She is a charmer. She charmed the keeper of women. We learn in verses 8 to 11 of Esther chapter 2. So when the king's order, this is verse 8, so when the king's order and his edict were proclaimed, and when many young women were gathered in Susa the citadel in custody of Haggai, Esther also was taken into the king's palace and put in custody of Haggai who had charge of the women and the young woman pleased him and won his favor. She pleased him and won his favor. Esther here is presented as the perfect match for the king. There's no one better than Esther. She's perfect. First of all, we find in verse 7, the narrator wants you to know that she had a beautiful figure and was lovely to look at. She had a beautiful figure and was lovely to look at. Why is that important? Well, because when we began this, remember, beautiful, young virgins. That's the key. So when they went out into these cities, you can imagine how this went down. They went into the various cities of the empire and, and definitely throughout Susa, and they're not just looking for ordinary, homely girls. They want beautiful ones. So they were saying, you not you, you, not you, you. And they brought them in. They wanted the beautiful ones. Well, the narrator wants us to know, Esther fits the bill. Beautiful figure, lovely to look at. But there's another thing that's important for her. This young woman cannot be headstrong. She cannot be a woman who stands her ground. She needs to be pliable. And the narrator tells us that Esther fit this bill perfectly. Notice in verse 10, she listened to Mordecai. Esther had not made known her people or kindred, for Mordecai had commanded her not to make it known. We find the same thing as you turn again to verse 20, uh, the beginning of verse 20. <clears throat> Esther had not made known her kindred or her people, as Mordecai had commanded her, for Esther obeyed Mordecai, just as when she was brought up by him. Esther is every bit the soft and gentle and tender young woman who listens to those in authority 
over her. She's not headstrong, not bullheaded. In fact, we find, if you, if you look on down, this is brought out uh, again in verse 15. When the turn came for Esther, the daughter of Abiel, the uncle of Mordecai, who had taken her as his own daughter to go into the king, she asked for nothing except what Haggai, the king's eunuch, who had charge of the women advised. When she was asked, what would you like to take, Esther? She simply said, well, what do you recommend? And batted her eyes. We notice in verse 9 that when Esther was in custody of Haggai the eunuch, she not only gained favor, Esther won favor. Do you notice that? There's a big difference between someone looking at you and granting you favor and winning favor. There's an action here. Esther was not only beautiful and timid and shy in that regard, she also knew how to speak, what to say, when to say it, when to be quiet, when not to speak. And she won his favor so much so that notice in verse 11, um, I'm sorry, verse 10. One more time, preacher. Verse 9. The young woman pleased him and won his favor. And he quickly provided her with her cosmetics and her portion of food and with seven chosen young women from the king's palace or the king's house, and advanced her and her young women. I can't help but think there's a little bit of tongue-in-cheek here when the narrator says that she was advanced to the best place in the harem. That sounds a little bit like saying you're flying first class on a plane that's going down. The best place in the harem. Who doesn't want that place? She willingly went through the ritual of beautification, a year-long immersion in oils and spices, a literal rubbing down of the flesh and the garments. Perhaps it is thought to infuse those scents into her just to expand the beauty to its furthest reach. She went through this purification, this removal, perhaps of the natural odors of the body. She not only charmed Haggai, the eunuch, and probably Shaashgaz of the concubines, she also charmed the king, we find in verses 12 through 18. Now, when the turn came for each young woman to go into King Ahasuerus, after being 12 months, we notice uh, under the regulations for the women, skipping down, to verse 13, when the young woman went, woman went in to the king in this way, she was given whatever she desired to take with her from the harem to the king's palace. And then uh, skip down to verse uh, 17. The king loved Esther more than all the women, and she won grace and favor in his sight more than all the virgins, so that he set the royal crown on her head and made her queen instead of Vashti. This is the part of the story that ought to make your stomach turn a little bit. How did each woman seek to win the heart of the king? Well, first they were chosen for their beauty, as we mentioned just a moment ago. 
But then they had one final tryout, a night alone with the king. This accents the disgusting nature of the whole event. This beautiful young woman had become a whore in the king's palace. What a shame. After the preceding context, we know that the inevitable happened. Esther replaced Vashti. We read just a moment ago, she received the crown. A banquet was even thrown, Esther's banquet. So the narrator wants us to see it is as if Vashti never existed. Everything lines up perfectly now. All the stars are in place. There's a new queen and a new banquet. And in fact, some of the tax money is distributed amongst the people. The narrator of the story expects you and me to wrestle with the elements that he presents. Do you envy Esther? I mean, think about it. Isn't this the ultimate rags to riches story? Orphan girl becomes queen of one of the greatest empires of all time. Who is your heroine in the story so far? Esther or Vashti? Who refused to be treated like a piece of meat and lost the crown? Or do you envy Esther who accepted the role and won the crown? What are you willing to do to gain wealth and status? Will you forsake all? Will you forsake all morality? Do you have limits? What are your limits? Who defines them? Will you shave a corner? Will you fudge a number? Will you obey any order as long as it comes from an authority? There will be times when your allegiance and mine are tested. When we are asked, will you obey God or men? Will you have the maturity and the wisdom even to tell the difference? In this story, are you an Esther or are you a Vashti? Let's return now in conclusion to finish up with Mordecai the guardian or again... Fathers, don't let your daughters grow up to be prostitutes. Verses 19 to 23 close out the story. There's something of what we often refer to as an inclusio, an inclusion. There's, we begin with Mordecai and these seemingly random facts about him, his lineage, when, when none of the story really seems like it relates to Mordecai. Why do we even care that his great-great-great-great-grandfather was related to Saul, that he's a Benjamite, Benjaminite? What, do these, what bearing do these things have? 
at all. And, and then we come back and the story actually concludes or the scene concludes with Mordecai again. It is as though Mordecai plays some central role in this whole thing. The story concludes with a seemingly heroic stance on the part of Mordecai. Let's notice what he did. He, he's evidently a man who has some influence. He's, he doesn't live just in Susa. Uh, Mordecai lived in the citadel, which was an outcropping. He, he is able to go into the palace, it seems, so that he can check on Esther. So this is a man who has some influence, some sway. And while he is there, we notice that he discovered a plot. Pick up with me in verse 21. In those days, as Mordecai was sitting at the king's gate, Bigthon and Teresh, that really sounds like a thug's name, doesn't it? Bigthon and Teresh, two of the king's eunuchs who guarded the threshold, became angry and sought to lay hands on King Ahasuerus. And this came to the knowledge of Mordecai. And he told it to Queen Esther, and Esther told the king in the name of Mordecai, when the affair was investigated and found to be so, the men were both hanged on the gallows, and it was recorded in the book of the Chronicles in the presence of the king, and nothing was done for Mordecai. No honor, no appreciation. There's another thing, another element that the narrator intends for us to wrestle with. Is Mordecai a hero or a villain? My daughter, one of them, was recently reading this part for her Bible class and sent me a text message that simply said, Dad, why was Mordecai such a jerk? I think she hit the nail on the head. And you need to pay attention. Just think for a mo moment about Mordecai the indecent. There is a reason the narrator wants you to know so badly that this man is a descendant of Saul. Saul is not famous for being a goodly and a godly king. He also was noted for his superficiality. He was chosen as king on what basis? He was really tall. Perfect king. We note in this text that he permitted his daughter to be taken to serve as a prostitute in the harem of a pagan king. Would you? Would you let your daughter be taken to serve as a prostitute in the harem of a pagan king? Or would you say, over my dead body, some commentators emphasize the passive verbs here. So quoting from one, he says, the narrator intends to characterize the taking of Esther into the king's harem as an irresistible fate that neither he nor Esther can resist. In other words, the commentator is trying to absolve Mordecai of any guilt here. But there's one problem Someone just defied the king. Vashti. Not only this, but Mordecai permitted his daughter 
to, to take this action or to be taken knowing full well Vashti's actions and the sentence passed upon her. But I want you to notice one subtle oversight that the narrator makes here. Go back with me to verse 5. Now there was a Jew in Susa, the citadel, whose name was Mordecai, the son of Jair, son of Shimei, son of Kish, a Benjaminite who had been carried away from Jerusalem. Skip with me to verse 7. He was bringing up Hadassah, that is Esther. You notice that? You notice that we are told Esther's Hebrew name, but we are not told Mordecai's Hebrew name. Now surely he had one. I mean, this comes right on the heels of the book of Daniel, right? And we know that Daniel and Shadrach and Meshach and Abednego all were also known by their Hebrew names. Why don't we have the Hebrew name of Mordecai? And to to push a little bit further, his Babylonian name would likely have been Marduka or Marduku, which sounds strikingly similar to the name of the Babylonian god Marduk. Lastly, in considering Mordecai, the whole time, think about this, the whole time that Esther is preparing for her one-night stand showdown, Mordecai is presented as a curious onlooker. Verse 11, And every day Mordecai walked in front of the court of the harem to learn how Esther was and what was happening to her. He's presented like an exciting man hanging over the rail at Churchill Downs wondering how his horse is doing. What does all this mean? Well, though he was a Jew, according to verse 5, Mordecai behaves and thinks exactly like Ahasuerus, the Persian. There, there is a parallel in the book of Judges. Turn with me there just quickly. Judges chapter 19. We'll read the first couple of verses and then skip down to verse 22. This is one of those defining closing moments in the book of Judges. And it is intended to cause your jaw to drop on the floor in in disgust. Judges chapter 19 verse 1. In those days when there was no king in Israel, major point, A certain Levite was sojourning in the remote parts of the hill country of Ephraim who took to himself a concubine from Bethlehem in Judah. So here is a Levite man. Levites only supposed to marry virgin young women who has taken to himself a concubine. And his concubine, according to verse 2, was unfaithful to him. Shocker. And she went away from him to her father's house at Bethlehem in Judah and was there some four months. So the Levite man, he went after his concubine. He went to her father's house and was pleading with her to come back with him. By the way, 
They are in the city of Gibeah of Benjamin. Verse 22. He's on his way back. They arrive in the city of Gibeah. They stayed overnight. Now, here's a familiar scene. As the men of Gibeah were making, heart, making their hearts merry. What does that mean according to Esther chapter 1 verse 10? They were drinking a lot. Behold, the men of the city, worthless fellows, surrounded the house, beating on the door, and they said to the one old man, the master of the house, bring out the man who came into your house that we may know him. Sound familiar? Sodom. They want the Levite man. And the man, the master of the house, went out to them and said to them, No, my brothers, do not act so wickedly since this man has come into my house. Do not do this vile thing. Behold, here are my virgin daughter and his concubine. Let me bring them out now. Violate them and do with them what seems good to you. But against this man, do not do this outrageous thing. But the men would not listen to him. So the man seized his concubine and made her go out to them. And they knew her and abused her all night until the morning. And as the dawn began to break, they let her go. And as morning appeared, the woman came and fell down at the door of the man's house where the master was until it was light. So the Levite man, he, he came out and he found his dead concubine on the threshold. He brought her inside. He cut her into pieces and mailed the pieces out into Israel so that all men might know this heinous thing that was done in Gibeah of Benjamin. War ensued, civil war. But in the Hebrew Scriptures, Ruth does not come between Judges and 1 Samuel. Judges leads into 1 Samuel. And after the call of Samuel, what do we learn? Well, Israel wants a king. So here comes a man from where? Gibeah. Is that supposed to ring a bell? Gibeah? Worthless fellows? And here comes a man from Gibeah named Saul looking for his father's donkeys. The point of this narrative is that the people in Israel had become vile. Everyone, as you know, did what was right in his own eyes. What's the parallel to Mordecai? Well, Mordecai, though a Jew, was foreign to the Jewish God. He was every bit a Persian. He offered his daughter to take this position for power. And the question for us is this. Though a Christian, have you, like Mordecai, lived so long in this exile that you have adopted the customs and the habits of the people who are at home here? Do you remember Jerusalem? Do you remember Zion? Do you know where your home is? Do you know the customs of that city? Do you remember it? Do you think about it? Do you long for it? Is that your place? 
Or have you adopted the customs and the habits of those who are at home here? What are your life goals? How are you raising your children and grandchildren? How do you define success? If someone wrote your story, would it look any different than the people who are at home here? from any other red-blooded American. Your Lord has said, he who would come after me must take up his cross and deny himself. We cannot have any greater love than Christ. And the longer that we are in exile, in this place, the longer we are tempted to conform to the habits and the customs of this place. Becoming just like Mordecai. The exhortation from this passage is don't do that. Remember whose you are and where you are from. Remember that Christianity is a whole world and life view. As I mentioned this morning, does that define you? Are you a Vashti or are you an Esther? Let's pray. Father, we confess that the pressure is so great for us to conform to the customs and the habits of this world, to, to find our, our morals on Twitter, to look to see what's trending there and to adopt that as, as what we affirm or deny. Father, that's a very great temptation and we confess it to You. And we ask that You would keep us from compromise. Lord, strengthen our love and our longing for our true homeland, for Zion, for the place where Christ is, our great Husband, to long for Him. Help us to walk in faithfulness to Him. We are no better than Mordecai. No better. No better. Give us strength. Strength of love, strength of conviction, to long for Christ, and to have fidelity to Him. We pray in His name. Amen.